just so you know. All right. We're live. We're talking about Super Bowl picks. Who's going to win? Is it going to be Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks? Or, no, I'm just kidding. All right. Wrong show. Uh, we're talking about cool stuff that's going on today. So we're going to go in reverse order. As you guys know, I'm Ray Wong um, with uh, Disrupt TV Constellation Research. And I got my awesome co-host, uh, Bala Ashar, co-founder, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, L, our producer. And of course, we have our guest, Scott Anthony, coming in from Singapore. He'll be coming in a little bit later. Uh, but let's talk to um, Shazia. Where are you calling in from? And what are we talking about? Hey everyone, um, I'm calling in from San Mateo in the Bay Area, and today I'll be talking about the state of consumer credit since the pandemic and how we've been helping our consumers with their financial wellness journey here at Credit Sesame. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks a lot. Um, Steve, where are you calling in from and what are you talking about today? I'm calling in from Cambridge, England. Uh, so other side of the pond, though, the accent uh, gives me away as, a, as an American, of course. And today we're going to be talking about global talent mobility, uh, which used to mean traditional employee relocations, but the definition has changed completely this year with our shift to remote work. So excited to dig in. All right. Very, very cool. We're going to start the show. We're going to close everyone out. This show is sponsored by Robots and Pencils. Please check them out. And now we're going to begin the countdown. So go ahead. Do the honors, Al. Three, two, one. Hello and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host Ray Wong. He is the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and breaking news this year, he's coming out with his new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's a regular television business and technology news contributor. I see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg almost daily. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, five years in. And of course, he's the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce. But most importantly, he's the one everyone's looking at and following on Twitter. CEOs, CFOs, CIOs, and CMOs are tracking him for every piece of inspirational thought. But more importantly, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an author. He's also on Bloomberg TV in Canada. And of course, more importantly, it is our fifth year together. So Happy fifth anniversary, man. Yeah, thanks. What a great way to start off our, our, our you know, journey into beyond our fifth year by our, having our first guest, uh, Steve Black, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Topia. Since co-founding Topia in 2011, Steve has been there to see the company's growth from a small London-based startup to an award-winning global talent mobility. And we're going to learn about a new meeting of talent mobility platform supporting organizations around the world. At Topia, Steve leads strategic initiatives leveraging deep industry and customer insights. As an expatriate himself, Steve understands the challenge of moving abroad and is dedicated to ensuring that everything we do at Topia is the best interest of their customers. Originally from the great state of Illinois, we talked about that before the show, Steve has worked and lived across the US, Switzerland, New Zealand before planting his feet in, in London, UK. Steve was previously an associate partner at Oliver Wayman, where he led consulting engagements across North America and EMEA. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Black UK. Welcome, Steve, to the Shrop TV. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Hey, thanks a lot for being here. I mean, what better time to talk about global talent mobility? Think about what's been happening. People are at home, people are working from different places. And I have never had more discussions about what we're gonna do next, given the level of introspection that's going on. But what's global talent mobility today? What's happening right now? And give us a little bit on your perspective. Absolutely. So it has a, a very interesting and varied uh, history, right? Uh, 20, 30 years ago, global talent mobility was all about a multi-year expat assignment. So you think about sending an exec to a, a new region, uh, mm -hmm. open up a new footprint across the globe. And the mm -hmm. definition has widened year on year. Uh, so we've seen growth in cross-border recruiting, right? This this explosion in find the best talent and get them to our HQ and, and, and let's get going and have an impact. And you know, really pre-COVID, the next big thing for global talent mobility was owning the compliance risk around business travel, 
right? Remember that when that was still yep, a thing? We sort of skipped over that. Uh, as somebody who used to live on airplanes, uh, we skipped over that uh, and went right to remote work, right? Which was this topic which we'd been talking about for years as the next great thing, five, 10 years from now, we'll all be you know, working from home and, and on uh, probably talking about WebEx at that time. Um, and you know what we saw really was that this definition now has to include where are my people working wherever they are, right? So I'm at my house in, in Cambridge, but I could easily pick up my laptop and, you know, soon maybe hop on a plane and, and get to France. Or if I had a vacation home somewhere around the world, I might have spent the pandemic locked up somewhere else. So it's really much more complex uh, and, and impacting a lot more employees than ever before. Yeah, we've had uh, the head of McKinsey practice on the show, mm. and he thought that the pandemic uh, led to maybe a five-year to 10-year range, um, cultural and digital transformation in just 2020 alone. We had head of technology at Accenture, Paul Doherty, talk about, again, multi-year acceleration, both from, again, acceptance of working from home, uh, so cultural transformation, as well as you know adoption of like e-commerce that we actually think we've seen 10 years of adoption just in 2020. So uh, you know, as of March of last year, certainly for my company of 55,000 employees, light switch we went to a decentralized digital only construct mm. and because we were designed for movement meaning we were a cloud first company it was much easier for our 55,000 employees to literally in days make that transition now some other companies obviously you know based on their infrastructure and technology and culture um, had to you know have a longer uh, uh, time period with the shift what has the pandemic done in terms of talent mobility um, the, the seismic uh, impact of, of COVID on, on talent mobility since since last year. Yeah, incredible. I mean, when we when the pandemic really hit, sort of March April timeframe, and COVID sort of first crossed our lips. The question right then was, where are people? Right, who's been to China recently? Who's been to Italy? How do we get yeah. them home? So there was this massive almost. Uh, we can tell the world's sort of closing down. We get, let's get our people, make sure they're safe. And so after that initial sprint, then it started to flip to okay. Well, actually, global mobility has meant physical movement. We're all in lockdown. Sort of, is this the end of, of mobility, right? So we had all the news stories about employee <laughs> relocation is dead and business travel is dead and Zoom for life and, and everything there. And what we, what we saw is as we got through the summer and into the second half of the year, the conversation then shifted to, hang on a second, everybody's safe. We were now ironed out the kinks of getting onto to Zoom and whatnot. But we don't actually know where people are working. We were hearing stories pop up of, hey, I'm at my vacation home in, in Vail, or you know, I've I, I didn't get back from my trip to you know to Paris or whatever the case may be, and it, everybody was pretty um, actually reasonable and relaxed about it, right? Because we were all just trying to figure it out and and, yeah. and stay safe along the way. But organizations, you know, started to figure out and twig that actually this is some pretty serious compliance risks, whether that's tax or immigration. You can't actually just stay wherever you want, uh, as much as we like to think as borders is open and, and the world is free. Like there's a, there's a lot of laws out there that uh, can catch you up if you're not careful. Was I really in California? No, I haven't been here the whole time. I was, I was in Nevada. Yeah, no, no state taxes there. Could have been anywhere. I, I actually had a, I had a friend that actually a really high level uh, executive at Microsoft that was in his RV the whole time. Like I'm not sure how he booked his time. Like, but he was he literally went around wow. the country like twice. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. So you are seeing lots of things like that pop up everywhere. Uh, but it is so. But but what does this mean, though? Does the pandemic change the future of work? I mean, we're, we're talking about you can source talent everywhere. Are we going to yeah. see changes in terms of like centers of you know talent? I mean, are we going to see the? I mean, where people are talking about the exodus of cities and density. Is, I mean, we see people moving to other places and other locales for lifestyle reasons, family reasons. Mm -hmm. Like, is that is that all part of what you're talking about as well? It is absolutely right. And and how organizations and individuals go through the evaluation process of if I want to pick up and move to Scotland from where I am now, probably fine. Actually, not much of an implication from a tax or, or, or immigration perspective. If I wanted to go to Germany, big deal. Uh, and oh, yeah. even just oh, yeah. even just within the, in, in the U.S., right, to your point on the sort of California versus Nevada, again, big implications for potentially for the company and, and the individual themselves. And so yeah, I, I heard a great story. It was uh, I won't 
instead of say which company, but I was talking to a CHRO and they managed to fi find a bunch of uh, hidden employees that had moved across the country during the pandemic when they said, hey, we're about <laughs> to send some new company swag out, update your address and yep. workday. And then poof, all of a sudden we found a few dozen people that aren't in states that they should be in, right? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> and, and, and so I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, I, I think the reality is we're going to end up somewhere in the middle of, in the most complex middle ground almost. So yeah. if we're all at home all the time, that's actually pretty easy. If we're all in the office five days a week, right, that's pretty easy. But the messiness of split time, um, two days a week in the office, three days at home, or go to somewhere and work remotely for three months over the course of the year are all sort of new models that from a talent and individual perspective actually sound pretty exciting. But actually then the next stage is how do we pull those off from a corporate perspective so we can attract and retain and develop the best talent while not falling afoul of the rules and regulations that are out there all around mm -hmm. the globe? Uh, does this mean that you're finding uh, uh, CHROs more inclined to lean into technology and software and companies like yourself to um, have a better understanding of the chaos that we've experienced over the last year? And, and then the follow-up question, what does the software do to help CHROs recognize that it's likely a hybrid model moving forward, uh, certainly in the tech sector it's likely to be hybrid where the employees will have an option of working from home or office most of our research shows that um, most want to have hybrid options i want to be in the office a couple of days or uh and, and and at home so they want that flexibility uh so it's i'm inclined to say at least in my space um and my company uh the again fifty four thousand employees of salesforce will have always have an option uh, regardless of their line of business to work from home or the office. So it, it, technology becomes even a more vital tool for s folks like CHROs or even every line of business owner to really understand and manage talent. Um, so um, thoughts about CHROs being more digital savvy and then specifically how software helps. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really interesting intersection of the CHRO and finance worlds, right? So on one hand, right. you have the right. what's our culture, what's our talent strategy, right? Are we, are we, we want people close by at least part time to drive innovation and those sort of, sort of spur of the moment conversations. And so everybody has to be able to commute a couple of days a week. Or are we actually considering maybe going an extreme GitLab approach of you know, yeah. remote first or remote permanent? And I think that's that, that there's a cultural and talent side, and then there is the risk and, and dollar signs. Yes. So where do we have offices? How big are our offices? Right. We, at Topia, we had an office in London. We shut it down You know, early in the pandemic. We were lucky our lease was coming up, yeah. took the opportunity to for everybody to move out. And it's you know, it's been on lockdown since, so been able to save some cash. I think we'll go back to something right when the world returns, but sure. what that looks like and, and what that model will differ. And, and we're seeing that REI selling selling their brand new headquarters before they moved in, Pinterest moving out of a headquarters. And so this, this interesting talent and cost play is happening yeah. a lot. And then from a technology perspective, what we're seeing and and what our what so one of our products, Topia Compass, is all about employee location, right? And we have other pieces that are more, the more traditional relocation side of things. And the employee location side of it is it's not about, you know, what street were you on at, at 4 p.m. on a Friday when you should have been in the office where you're at the bar around the corner or, or whatever, which, you know, everybody's afraid, a little bit afraid of Big Brother. But it's really about from a tax jurisdiction uh, or, or sort of immigration point of view, where are you, right? So am I in the U.K. or am I in a different country? In the U.S., it'll go down to state level or, or in some cases city level. So San Francisco, New York, Seattle, L.A. all have city-specific uh, taxes. Ooh. There you go. Look at you. Um, all have taxes, right? Which mean if you can show your employees are working outside of that city, tax savings. If you're a, a hedge fund or an unincorporated business in New York City, there can be millions of dollars at stake because nobody's working in Manhattan. Yep. UBT. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so there's been, there's yeah. so much of that happening. And then I think on the talent and culture side, it's this interplay of um, we need to know where people are from a trust and compliance perspective. We don't want to be big brother because uh, everyone's afraid of that. But really interestingly, we're, we're about to announce, uh, I think it's next week, the results of a, a survey we ran across um, the U.S. And, and the U.K. And we were digging into this big brother you know, privacy concern that I think we've all talked a lot about from a tracking perspective. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. at, the, at the country level, 95% of employees were fine being tracked at what country you're in. Down to the street level, 
84% didn't care if their employer tracked what street they were on at a given point in time. I was shocked, right? I expected country level, yeah, wow. fine. Yeah, you know, make my life easier. Don't sure. make me fill out a calendar. But I think the street level point was a really interesting one. And I don't know if it's because we're all so used to being tracked these days, whether it's Google or Facebook, whoever's <laughs> sort of tracking us around our lives. Um, but but I think there's it's interesting how much we talk about the privacy concern. But I think done well and done for the right reasons to protect the individual and the company, people can actually get pretty comfortable with uh, with, with being tracked uh, in uh, in a lot of in a lot of cases. Wow, so if the aggregate was 80 some odd percent comfortable at the street level, I'm assuming when you slice and dice it by age demographic, I, I, I may be wrong, but I'm assuming the younger, maybe even in a 90% or plus comfortable with, with yeah. uh, you know, giving as much, uh, you know, minute information about where they are and what they're doing, which is, which is interesting. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a little bit surprising. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when we think about like, you know, what's, what's going on with privacy location, right? A lot of it's really trust, right? If you trust your employer not to right. do anything with the information, yeah. I think most people are okay with it. Right. Right? But this does lead to this very interesting point we were talking about, like, you know, we're sending free swag <laughs> and you find out, you know, people are all over the place. Um, you know, like you know, some of my kids' friends uh, have actually left the country and are still doing remote school. Right. And, and what, you know, and you see that already all across the place. So this jurisdictional issue is going to be very interesting as states are going to be clamoring to get their tax revenues as people are fleeing certain taxes and certain states. So it's going to be interesting to see how they do that. Um, when you manage that risk and when you think about what that happens in the software um, along with that, but you guys are also doing other things with talent mobility, right? You're also looking at interest. You're matching what people do. Talk about all this, all the future stuff that's happening that gets you out of the compliance stuff. Talks about really, um, you know, the future direction of where you see the company going. Absolutely. And it's one of the things overarching from a vision perspective, right? A point of view born out of that personal pain moving around the world myself is that, you know, individuals and companies should be able to work everywhere. Right. Um, and, and, and part of that is about, sure, the compliance headache or the logistics of how do I get my stuff from A to B and, and not overpay and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but when I think about the, the talent piece of the puzzle and one of the things that I've been really pleased we've been able to do is bring together um, disparate data. Right. So integration and sort of platform play has been at the core of our, our strategy, because when you look at the traditional decisions around who do I move to a given location for a given opportunity? So I need a tech lead in Vienna, right? Who's the best person for that role? Too often the decision has been on, okay, I could hire somebody locally. Um, you know, maybe they're not, haven't been with the company before, but I can avoid that relocation package that might cost me 50 grand. Or maybe I could bring a sort of up and coming star from California to Vienna to pop cross pollinate some of the cultural norms and, and ideas of the organization, help learn and groom that next generation of leaders. And by combining um, the, the talent data and demographic information of that individual, you can actually start to create a business case uh, that, that aligns with talent strategy so that when you're comparing you know, local cost of hiring versus bringing somebody across the, across the board, you start to understand the person you're moving is more likely to stay with the business, right? They already yeah. have trust and, and knowledge and, and, and relationships. Um, they're more likely to stay with the business longer, right, after they return back to their home location. And if you look at the C-suite of all of these global organizations, they all have international experience. So you're also grooming that next generation of leaders. And so we've been been excited by how we brought in, you know, data for whether it's a workday or a success factors um, in to tell a cohesive story to tie to that talent, uh, talent agenda. Mm -hmm. And also there's a, an, a completely untapped world of talent analytics in this space as well of, hey, which geographies have we had real success, you know, pushing our, our top performers through? Do we actually have a problem when we send folks to China? Maybe we don't support them from a cultural training or, or investment perspective, mm -hmm. and therefore they all leave after we've invested a million dollars each in, in a multi-year experience, right? And so, you know, I think there's this real opportunity to take what has been, frankly, a black box. Mobility often is you start talking about tax equalization and split payroll and eyes glaze over and um, and and people just stop thinking <laughs> about it. But if you can give access to the tools to help, I don't know, a line manager or even an employee say, hey. Where are there opportunities in the world that maybe I could raise my hand to go to? Okay, what's the office like in Estonia? Where is Estonia first, right? Um, and, and, and so I think some of that stuff and bringing that real talent and employee-centric part of the conversation with a bit of the, of course, compliance and, and sort of corporate lens really, though, allows us to help, you know, with that fluidity of movement and that, you know, making the world a smaller place by bringing us all together. 
Also get a digital sure, passport sure. while I'm in Estonia while we're at it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, advanced digital countries in the world. Um, in fact, I think they just got rated the, the smartest children, uh, have scored the highest score test in, in Estonia. Um, my final question, Steve, uh, you know, let's assume that the distribution of vaccines continue to ramp and have success. Um, so this time next year, we have you on the show. It's now February 2022. Um, what does business travel look like a year from now? Um, you know, assuming that, you know, we're able to, uh, you know, be able to manage the pandemic uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and be in a better position than we are now. Yeah, this is this is an interesting one, right? Because you hear, man, the, the the death of business travel uh, mm. is is a tough one. And and as somebody who sort of had multi-year one K status on United, um, you know, I'm I'm certainly not maybe missing all the flights, but I'm excited to get back out there a, a little bit. Um, you know, for for me, I think there's there's the sort of death of business travel is a little bit overblown. Mm. I, I think for three reasons. Um, one, you know, your road warriors that are out there, whether it's your service staff or implementation teams or professional services, the, the, there's still a huge piece of the, the client relationship. It, it's that it's so hard to build uh, over, over Zoom. I think we're going to see then the second tranche is, is sort of the sales arms race, as I, I like to think about it. So yes, I'm happy to pitch over Zoom. Uh, if my competitor also is, but I'll tell you what, the moment they're on a plane and in a room, I am too, right? You just can't, right? You can't, you can't not be. And then I think the, the third piece of the puzzle, which is actually really interesting, and I think will offset the fact that a lot of those road warriors will travel less, maybe it's 60% of what they used to travel otherwise. Yep. This third new, new population is what I call the, the, the never used to travel. Right. So people who were five days a week in an office um, and now they're they're flexible. Some are relocating. Some are being hired permanently remotely. And we'll see this this big spike in team get togethers, quarterly kickoffs, you know, customer success launches, all these things that mean folks will be traveling once or twice a year that never traveled before for work. And actually, if you think about, you know, a large organization, you know, 50, 100,000 employees, you do the math on that. And actually, you know, business travels, you got, you got plenty, um, plenty to come back to, I think, as we start to see it happening from a safe perspective. I completely agree with your thesis, completely. Yeah, and we're gonna definitely see people wanting to get back together, much more meaningful interactions. We just did a poll today of a bunch of the CIOs for our morning CIO, uh, CXO kind of council, and everybody's ready to get back to travel. Um, and you can see the different types of openings in different parts of the country. It's very interesting to see uh, different perspectives. So we're here with Steve Black, co-founder and chief strategy officer at Topia. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Black UK. And more importantly, he's optimistic about where business travel's headed in 2021 and into the future. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you, Steve. Yes, appreciate it. Thank you. Great insights. And uh, I completely agree. We're going to see, uh, a strong appetite to getting back to in-person engagements. Uh, our, our second guest uh, today is Shazi Avergi, Vice President of Credit Marketplace at Credit Sesame. Shazi is a fintech industry leader with more than 10 years of experience in focusing on consumer finance. Shazi is passionate about bringing financial awareness and education to masses to help improve the quality of life for millions of people. Prior to her role at Credit Sesame, Shazia worked at Mint.com, a leading wealth management firm. You can follow her company's work at Credit Sesame, C-R-E-D-I-T-S-E-S-A-M-E. -E. Welcome, Shazia, to the Shrub TV. Thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. Yeah. Hey, welcome. And more importantly, we're talking about some very important things around personal finance and what's been going on, right? Mm -hmm. One would assume pandemic credit scores are disastrous. One would assume like people are actually facing a lot of issues. They're like at home buying everything online they can, uh, playing video games when they need to, and gambling. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but what's really going on? What's happening since the pandemic? Um, and what credit trends are you seeing across Credit Sesame's um, you know membership and 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 clients right now? Yeah, so Credit Sesame is a financial wellness platform, and financial wellness really starts with credit health. So we're really helping our members with their credit, and we have over 15 million members. And through the relationships we've built with these members, we actually have insight into millions of credit scores, millions of credit reports. We really know kind of the detailed behind the scenes what's going on with our members' credit. And we have an ongoing survey where even pre-COVID, during COVID, um, even this year, we you know, take a pulse of our members to see what their top priorities are. And so even though everything around us has changed um, seemingly over the past 12 months, 
one of the things that hasn't changed is that our members, their continuing top priority is improving their credit because it's so important. Uh, when you have good credit, you have you can buy a home, you can buy a car, you can start your own business. There's so many things that good credit unlocks for you in the overall in overall society. And so we've really seen that that is still kind of the continuing thing that our members are looking for. And over the past 12 months, we've seen such a spike in demand even for our platform and services because now more than ever, it's important to keep on top of your credit, know what's happening, um, because that really builds the foundation for your future financial success. That makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I was gonna say it's crazy story. Like FICO scores hit a record high during the middle of a pandemic. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, that's actually one of the very interesting trends that we saw. It's obviously a little bit unexpected, but we looked at our own members, and from March to September of last year, we saw that their credit scores were increasing by an average of 19 points. So that's quite quite a large um, increase. And we can attribute that to primarily two things. Um, the first one is the CARES Act that, that was enacted, and that really helped with forbearance protection. Um, it, provide more, it provided moratoriums on mortgage payments, student loan payments, evictions. Um, so it really provided relief for Americans who really needed it at that time. Um, I think we need to be mindful that those protections aren't going to be around forever, but at least for now, a lot of those are still in place. The second thing that we've seen is uh, the federal stimulus that has come out has been incredibly helpful for Americans who have either lost their jobs or you know, they are furloughed. So we've actually seen that many Americans who have been able to have taken their stimulus and used it to pay down their debt. And for those who have poor credit, actually paying down debt creates an even larger improvement in their scores. So, you know, that's a really good practice to take if you're able to do that. Um, and we ran a simulation on our members. We love to do simulations at Credit Sesame. We have a great data science team who's looking at this credit data every day. And we took a million members and we modeled out what would happen if they were to take the $600 stimulus check, which was uh, the latest round of stimulus, and if they applied that to pay down their credit card debt. And we found that if they did that, 70% um, of members would see a 19 point increase in their credit score in just one month. And 50% of those users could see an increase of 24 points. So, you know, it might not seem like a lot, but it's actually very meaningful. You know, you can um, qualify for better rates, you can qualify for better access to credit. So that increase is super meaningful, um, especially for those who are struggling with their credit. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, Ray, I, I'm not sure if I knew my credit score until after graduate school and probably number of years of working. Uh, I was probably 30 years old before I knew my credit score and and thinking back like why i wasn't mindful of it during undergrad and grad you know uh, uh and and really positioning myself to have a better score because <laughs> it does impact your, your purchasing power your, your, again better loans uh, sometimes employment power. yeah 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 no all of that i, I just did so so you know uh, are they programs where credit sesame is trying to reach to a younger demographic so that, you know, when you are ready to contribute to society as a working professional, you don't have that aha moment that, oh, wow, she's had no idea my, you know, those late payments affected my score so poorly. So, so uh, I'd, I'd love to know what your company's doing to, you know, position uh, young entrepreneurs and young, you know, workforce to, to have the education necessary to position themselves for success. You hit the nail on the head, right? They're not teaching. Uh, they're not teaching you about your credit in school. Uh, they're not really teaching you about your finances in school. So we really feel that responsibility of bringing awareness and education to the masses. So we have, you know, a large portion of our members who are new to credit. So they've either, you know, they don't have a score. They're not in the credit system. Maybe they're immigrants. And so we're really on the forefront of providing them that awareness and understanding of what credit is, what the credit system is. And you really need that awareness before mm -hmm. you can even get access to credit. Um, because if you don't have that kind of baseline of knowledge, it's really hard to get ahead. So you know, we encourage everyone to at least know what their credit score is and then dig a layer deeper into the credit report 
and we make it really easy. Um, you know, I've taken a look at my credit report. It's rather complicated. There's a lot of different <laughs> things on there. Um, and so, you know, Credit Sesame, we break it down into bite-sized pieces. You know, here's your payment history. Here are your inquiries. Here's what's impacting your score. And it really is understandable then to, you know, someone who knows nothing about credit. Well, well uh, Vala Shazi, I, I basically signed up for way too many free t-shirts in college. So I had too many accounts. You know, the thing that shows up on the bottom of the credit card, like too many accounts. I had something like 40 some credit cards at one point in time. So, wow. <laughs> um, what I did with them is a whole nother story, not for this show. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, just kidding. But yeah, so, but, but you know, this, this is real, right? I mean, credit does impact your, your, your future and, and what happens, but talk about what poor credit is doing for folks and like that impact, you know, what it, whether not just the financial aspects of poor credit. Yeah, the cost of poor credit is certainly more than financial. It really is a socioeconomic issue. It's it's a quality of life issue. So we're trying to make a social impact by creating, you know, better access, better understanding of your credit. Um, and we actually surveyed about 5,000 Americans and we asked them, you know, how has poor credit impacted you in your daily lives? And we heard so many stories, you know, obviously heartbreaking stories, stories of struggle, but poor credit has impacted people's careers, their housing opportunities, their mental health, you know, even the type of cell phone plan that they get. So it really does oh, wow. touch all aspects of your life. Give you know, me an and example. What happens if you have bad credit? Like what cell phone plan do you get? I mean, like, what's the difference? I'm very curious. Well, I mean, they, they check your credit. Um, yeah, so, no, you know, they run you it. Yeah, they totally yeah, run if, it. You, if you don't have good credit, I, you know, you don't qualify for, you know, the, the best types of offers that there are out there. Um, I don't know exactly which provider or what kind of service. Yeah, we, we, don't have, want but... we don't want to implicate any providers. Today. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good point. I mean, like, so, so you might get, you might have to pay more. You might not get the same monthly plan, right? You might actually exactly. have to hold more of a bigger deposit or something like that, right? Exactly. So. Yeah. Shazi, you mentioned uh, that the, uh, you know, Sesame likes to uh, love to model uh, scenarios. You have obviously a data science team that you reference. I'm assuming there's machine learning algorithms and advanced analytics and AI models that can give you a sense of potentially a decaying trajectory for someone's credit. Are we uh, going to see, or, or perhaps those services exist where you're uh, providing uh, preventative maintenance by looking at certain trends and working with your clients, knowing that it, with continuous behavior as you're modeling, they may uh, negatively impact their score. So you proactively engage with them and try to make course corrections as much as you can, given their budget situation, so that they you know, minimize any negative impact to their score. Yeah, that's great that you bring it up because we are using AI and machine learning to make this all understandable to our, our customers. And so what we do is we can model out what would happen if they took a positive credit behavior, such as increasing your credit limit, or what could happen if you know something happens and, and something happens with their credit in terms of an inquiry or something that negatively impacts them. So we can model out what the impact to our customer score will be. And we're very proactive about telling them, hey, here's what could happen. Here are the steps that you could consider. Um, and we can model out um, even uh, you know, understanding about, you know, we can calculate the um, probability of you getting approved for a credit product. Obviously it's not guaranteed, we can't guarantee anything, but we can kind of get our members to understand the directionality of, hey, if I apply for this card or this loan, will I get approved? Can I get approved? And what will happen to my credit? So we're always trying to provide that sense of confidence and empowerment, because once our customers have that empowerment, they can make the best financial decisions for themselves. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so, okay, we're looking into the future. We can actually go out, we can spend more. People are going to be like, you know, looking to buy more homes, uh, move in different places. Um, and one of the things is financial literacy. People aren't actually, uh, people go back to their old habits, right? So what can people do to stop themselves from like overspending, shopping on a spree, uh, you know, and, and uh, ruining their credit? Like what advice do you guys have for them for 2021? Yeah, so there's a few different tips um, that I would recommend. Uh, the first one is setting up a realistic budget. I know the word budget is overused, uh, but it really is important to build a budget based on your lifestyle, your goals. And obviously our expenses have changed. Many of us are working from home, so we're probably not spending as much on travel and entertainment, 
exactly. maybe we that maybe we've you know over indexed <laughs> on subscriptions. I mean, do you really need Netflix, Hulu, and HBO Max? Probably and not. And Disney Plus. And Disney, and Plus. Disney Plus, right. <laughs> so, you know, pairing back on the expenses that you don't need is going to help set you up for success. So um, every month I sit down at my kitchen table and I look through all my expenses, kind of like balancing a checkbook, um, you know, what, what people did back in the day, but really looking through my credit card statements, my bank statements, trying to see if I overspent in any categories or if I need to change my behavior for the upcoming month. So I find it really helpful to maintain that budget and update it because obviously things change um, and your expenses may change over time. Um, the second area that's really important is paying down your debt um, and really focus on debt that has the highest interest rate first. Because interest rate it doesn't rate, matter how much, it's the highest interest rate first is what you're exactly, saying. Exactly, because interest okay. compounds over time. And so eventually you'll end up paying more in interest than the principal even was worth. Yeah. So um, it's really uh, critical to focus on the high interest rate debt. Um, and then the third piece of advice I have is uh, build an emergency fund. So even if you start off small, that's totally okay, but this is an emergency fund for a rainy day. If something happens, if your car breaks down, um, you know, if you have a medical bill that you need to pay right away, these things come up. Um, and it is difficult to start saving, especially for the two thirds of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck, but even $2 a day um, gets you over $700 at the end of the year. So, you know, focusing on these good financial habits uh, will um, kind of create this longer term success uh, in your finances. Great, great uh, advice, uh, regardless of age, regardless of income, they're just common sense advice. So really appreciate that. Uh, you know, my final question, as you look, you know, three to five years ahead, what does this industry look like? Uh, you know, certainly 2020 was, you know, the year of decentralization, the, the year of digitization, um, and so many of life and work habits massively change. You no longer had expenditures associated with commuting. We, in the last segment, we talked about, you know, less real estate investments for businesses and office space and so on and so forth. Eventually, we're going to, you know, the pendulum will swing back to what was norm in 2019. Uh, but, you know, it, it is going to be a new norm. So when you model your advisory service based on spending behavior, you reference a 5,000 person survey. So obviously, Credit Sesame is constantly looking to learn from the outside in to improve your products and services. But is there something that you think will be fairly disruptive in the next several years in, in your industry and what your customers expect in terms of products and services from you? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's changed is, you know, this is the digital economy. We've been forced to move to digital. So it is really about your mobile wallet, kind of, you know, this phone that you have here, this is where you can do all of your finances. And we've known that for a while, but, um, it's really forced those who haven't gotten on that train yet to get on board. Um, so you have to really be open to, you know, doing your finances, um, you know, giving away some information in order to get that value back, uh, that value add service from services like, like ours at Credit Sesame or through others. Um, and so that's really where I see the trend continuing of the digital wallet becoming the most important part of your finances. Um, I also see that, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of disruption as a lot of the banks pulled back and tightened their lending standards due to COVID, um, you know, due to the unemployment and risk that they were seeing in the market. Those banks, as time goes on, they're going to be more able and willing to provide credit to consumers. So credit, I think, is still going to be one of the most important factors that we need to get right in order to get Americans ready to be able to borrow and borrow responsibly. Great answers. I just wrote an article that summarized ARK Invest's vision of mobile wallets. And first of all, it's the lowest acquisition cost for banks is mobile wallets. And, uh, you know, the sense of community, the low friction, uh, the mobility elements of it, it's absolutely the future. And frankly, U.S. is behind the rest of the world when it comes to mobile payments, mobile wallets. So, uh, lots and lots of disruptive uh, uh, work in that space. Great, great. Um, I agree with you 100%. I agree with you 100%. 
No, this is great. Thanks for being here with Shaja Verji, VP of Credit Marketplace at Credit Sesame. You can follow the company at Credit Sesame. And more importantly, uh, check out all their information on how to be more financially literate and ready for the post-pandemic world ahead of us when we go on a spending spree. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. We'll thanks see you for having night. me. So, great. Okay. That was awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, all right, we're going to... Our next guest is Scott D'Anthony, Strategic Advisor Managing Director at InnoSight. Scott helps leaders design new growth strategies, build innovation capabilities, navigate disruptive innovation, and manage strategic transformation. In his 17 years with InnoSight, Scott has advised senior leaders at some of the biggest companies in the world. In 2019, Thinkers 50 named Scott as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. And two years prior to that, Scott won the Thinkers 50 Innovation Award. Scott has written extensively around strategy and innovation. He's the lead author of a new book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, which we're going to talk about. I think it's his eighth book. I made a listing of his books. Uh, the Little Black Book of Innovation, Dual Transformation, Seeing What's Next, The Innovator's Guide to Growth, The Silver Lining, Building a Growth Factory, and The First Mile. Uh, Ray, I, I have such imposter syndrome with guests like Scott when they show, show up on Disrupt TV. <laughs> Scott has authored or co-authored uh, numerous dozens of articles for Harvard Business Review and Sloan Management Review, and has contributed to over 200 articles on Harvard Business Review's online network at hbr.org. Scott's a featured speaker on topics of innovation and growth. He has delivered keynote addresses on six continents and of almost all major news, business, and technology global media. Prior to joining Insight, Scott was a senior researcher with Harvard Business Professor Clay Christensen, managing a group that worked to further Christensen's research on innovation. He's a great follow on Twitter at Scott D. Anthony, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y. Welcome, Scott, to Disrupt TV. Well, Ray, thank you very much for having me. I am so thrilled to be part of episode 222, and this is actually 222 is a special number to me. My birthday is February 22nd, so this is- oh, that's awesome. Yeah, for me. Remember oh, to play wow. those lottery numbers. We're in good shape. <laughs> God, hey, it's so awesome to have you here. I mean, look, you've had a close relationship with the father of disruption. Mm -hmm. Who can forget Clay Christensen, rest in peace. Tell us about your relationship. How did it get started? How did you meet him? What was that first interaction like? Yeah, Ray, it goes back 21 years ago. I, I was a student at the time at the Harvard Business School, and I was entering my second year at the Harvard Business School, and, and I was picking what classes to take, and Clay Christensen was kind of known. He'd written this book, The Innovator's Dilemma, that was a big hot book in the technology industry, but he hadn't really broken through to be kind of the global megastar he would become. And there was this class, first version of the class, called Building and Sustaining a Successful Enterprise. And it wasn't a class that was in high demand, but it sounded kind of interesting. So sounds I very interesting, yeah. So. Yeah, and I, I remember the first day of class. You know, Clay, if you remember him, sadly passed away last year, but very tall, six foot, eight inches tall. And he kind of ambles into class. And this is a class about technological change and disruption and so on. And he pulls out acetate slides and he starts to lecture. And this is not what you do. The Harvard Business School is case-based teaching and people don't do things like this. And some people are like, this is really boring. I was just hooked from the very first slide. I intellectually fell in love and the rest is kind of history. That's amazing. That's, that so amazing. I had the good fortune of uh, meeting Professor Clay uh, Christensen. He sent me um, uh, you know, a proof copy of his, my favorite book, uh, How to Measure Your Life. And you know, a signed copy, but a separate note that says, you know, Vala, this is an early copy, so please forgive any mistakes. So, and then of course he sends me a hard copy and, you know, there's a, there's a private note in Harvard business letterhead that's included. So one of the things I learned from this, as you say, global megastar, because by the time this book came out, he's a, he's, you know, he's a hall of fame thinker is the level of humility and authenticity and accessibility. When you talked with him, he was so present and made you feel like, just uh, so I learned so much. I don't want to take the entire 20 minutes. So what did you learn being a student and being a, 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 a partner and creating value and, and thought leadership with him? What's the one takeaway that really stays with you having the honor and the privilege of, of being a colleague of his? Yeah, well, there, there's so much that I could say in response to this. And I did have the, the great fortune to be able to call Clay my teacher. 
to call Clay my boss, to call Clay my co-author, to call Clay my colleague, and most importantly, to call Clay my friend. And we, we still are saddened as a community with his way too early passing back in 2020. But if I were to get it down to, to one thing, and it's hard to get it down to one thing given Clay's intellectual stature, but the one thing I would say is Clay was just relentlessly curious. He was always seeking to learn. There's a sign outside his office at Harvard Business School that reads, Anomalies Wanted. And that was something that was really <laughs> true to him. He was always looking for things that didn't fit, that you didn't expect. Even when people said, your research doesn't work in this circumstance, rather than getting defensive, which he easily could have done, rather than ignoring it, he'd say, tell me more, because he wanted to learn more about it so we can make the work better for people who would use it in the future. That's awesome, Alice. That is awesome. That's a great point. And what we've been seeing across the board, right? I mean, this is this thirst for innovation, this thirst for knowledge. I mean, him and Christine, what a wonderful pair. Um, talk a little bit about like, you know, that disruption, that moment, right? Inside your book, you talk about eat, sleep, innovate. Something shifted, something changed in the way we looked at this. Everyone's talking about innovation, but they're not doing it necessarily the right way. Yeah, so and this is uh, obviously one of the big themes that we try to explore in the book. You know, people have been talking about innovation forever. The pandemic has made it a necessity in almost every single circumstance. So everybody knows this is important. If you go and decode what it takes to successfully innovate, it's not really that complicated. Yet, organizations continually struggle with it. So what we try to do in the book is say, okay, what exactly is innovation? How exactly do you do it? What exactly is the barrier that inhibits organizations from doing it? And how do you overcome that barrier? And of course, we can go deeper in any of those areas, but kind of the TLDR is innovation is something different that creates value. There are five behaviors that drive innovation success. The biggest barrier inside organizations is inertia. And the way you overcome that inertia is you hack habits with proven techniques from the behavior change literature. And of course, there's lots more to say, but that's at least the headlines in the book. Now, this sure, is related. Sure. I mean, if you think about the disruption that's been created with the pandemic and what's happened, right? What disruptive changes do you see today that are going to continue and some that were just more temporary? Hey, it's a great question. So when, when the pandemic really hit in full force back in, call it arguably April of last year, one of the things we did is step back and say, one of the things our clients will ask us regularly is what is the future world going to look like? What are the trends reshaping our environment? So we built this database of about 300 trends. And we said, which of these trends do we think the pandemic will catalyze or accelerate? And which of these trends will the pandemic dislocate? And there's three that I wanted to highlight here, two that are accelerated, one that's potentially dislocated. The first acceleration is pretty obvious, the adoption of digital technologies. I think it's obvious but important to state because it's now affected every part of the global economy. There was one big food company we were working with that in March, we told them that digital was important. They said, maybe. In May, they said, yeah, it probably is. In August, they said, this is existential for our organization. So you see that everywhere. The second one that's been catalyzed is the transformation of healthcare. The pandemic has really pushed the rapid adoption of new technologies to remotely treat and monitor and do things at the edges. This was happening already, but the pandemic really put the foot on the gas pedal. The dislocation is there had been a long-term trend towards growth in emerging markets, the emergence of the middle class in many emerging markets. There had been tighter integrations of societies. That's beginning to dissipate. You're having supply chains begin to fragment. You're having more separation in income in more parts of the world. Exactly how that pans out depends on what governments and markets do. But that's something that many organizations need to be watching really carefully in the months and years ahead. In your, uh, in your book, Eat, Sleep, Innovate, uh, throughout, you reveal collection of beans. I'm from Boston, so beans speaks to me. <laughs> uh, behavioral enablers, uh, artifacts, and nudges. And specific to behaviors, uh, the book talks about five innovation behaviors. Can you talk to us a little bit about these innovation behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. So again, innovation we define as something different that creates value. The five behaviors are, are pretty straightforward. Behavior one is curiosity. The quest to do something different that creates value starts with a question. Why not? What if? How might we? The second behavior is customer obsession. If you want to create value, you have to solve a problem that matters to a customer, stakeholder, et cetera. You have to find a job they're struggling to get done. Hmm. Third behavior is collaboration. Magic happens at intersections when different mindsets and skills collide together. 
Great innovators plant themselves at those intersections. The fourth behavior is being adept in ambiguity. We know that innovation is never a straight line. It's trial and error experimentation, fumbles, false steps, and the occasional failure. The fifth behavior is being empowered. You can't do something different that creates value unless you do something. So yes, you got to talk. Yes, you might have to create some PowerPoint slides, but you actually have to put your idea into action. So those are the five behaviors we talk about in the book. And Scott, uh, are these in um, order of difficulty, priority? Do you need to have foundational curiosity uh, to, to be able to achieve the other four? Or what's the inter interdependency or what's the most important muscle you need to develop to have this innovative behavior? It's a really great question. The, the behaviors roughly, roughly map against the phases of the innovation journey. So it starts with covering opportunity, which needs curiosity and customer obsession. You then have to blueprint an idea, customer obsession, and collaboration helps there. You have to iteratively test and learn it, then you got to scale it. So it roughly follows the phases of that journey. If I were to argue primacy for those behaviors, I probably would put gold stars against two of them. The curiosity, which I really think is foundational, as you suggested, and being adept in ambiguity, because the only way you ultimately succeed is by trial and error experimentation. You cannot study your way to innovation success. I mean, of course, you got to do your homework and all that, but it is the design and execution of smart experiments and learning from their results that separate the innovation winners from the innovation losers. Makes a lot of That's sense. a great point there. I mean, there are a lot of innovation losers. And why is innovation so hard inside the organization? I mean, like, what, what is that barrier? Is it is it something that not enough of a burning platform? Is it just, you know, things are going great. We don't have to do anything. Or is it like a skill set? I mean, it seems like so many things can go wrong. And, 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 and as you say this, Ray, I think about yesterday's announcement with Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO. And so many times I've heard him say, this is the Amazon's the best place to fail. And we experiment and it just feels to me like you really, the, the person at the top really has to have those, exhibit those five behaviors in order for the company to flourish. But I'm going to defer to the expert. But yeah, when I, just like think about, like I think about Bezos and Amazon when you ask that question. And places like Coca-Cola, which you guys have done work with as well. Yeah. I mean, these are interesting places, right? So, well, okay, yeah. well, let's ask it the other way. What makes them succeed? Because there's so many failures out there. That might be a better question. Well, they're, they're, they're both interesting questions. So let, let me start with the, the success, and then maybe we'll come back to the failure. But, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos announcement, I, I think, is a good moment to, to pause and reflect. And the last paragraph in the email that Bezos sent Amazon employees, I think, is one that is just worth calling out. Awesome. I, I had this written down, so this is not from memory. Keep inventing and don't despair when at first the idea looks crazy. Remember to wander. Let curiosity be your compass. It remains day one. And this idea, as we talked about before, about really having curiosity at the core of the organization and this idea that it is day one, it is the beginning. We've got a growth mindset. We see possibilities. Yeah, we got to do the work. We have to make sure that we're not living in a fantasy world, but we're going to let our imagination drive us. And when you see places like Amazon, like Coca-Cola, like Pixar, or more normal organizations, DBS Bank in Singapore is an example in the book. Oh, USF yeah. What a great one. one. Yep. A lot of that is they've got this curiosity that they have driven through the organization and they've made sure that they don't fall prey to one of the big challenges you face, which is pretty simple. Innovation is something different. Organizations exist to do what they are currently doing more effectively and more efficiently. Left unchecked, everything in your organization is optimized to perpetuate the present and it strangles the creation of the future. So it's that inertia that's your big barrier, and the organizations that do this well have systematic ways to make sure they don't get strangled by that inertia. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. What a great point. I mean, the growth mindset is so hard, especially in established companies. So it is. It is. So one of the one of the things you mentioned was that you know there's that idea that innovation requires being comfortable with possibility of failure, um, understanding that failure is part of the learning journey. My the founder of my company. In all his books, references having a beginner's mindset, free of prejudice, curious, hungry. It's like if you have children, you know what beginner's mindset is all about. But so many times they ask you why, 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 until you realize, wow, I really don't understand the core <laughs> root cause of why things happen. So, so it, it humbles you. But, but, and I don't want to put it an extraordinary top ten thinkers fifty on the spot, but I'm going to do it anyway. Have you had any notable failures that you want to talk to us about? 
that yeah. talked about how it affected your thinking. Again, I, I, we don't normally put our guests on the spot, especially one of the biggest thinkers in the world. But you know, <laughs> you know, there, there's there's lots of lots of examples that I, I could share. So you know, I, I have had the good fortune of, of having a few articles published in the Harvard Business Review, sure. and I've had the the other fortune of having many articles rejected from the Harvard Business Review. Oh, you know, wow. you may know the shops you don't take. So there's small things like that where I think it's a great idea, and the editors say that's nice, but it's not. And then you know, at Insight, we are, I, I believe, a very successful consulting company. We are also restless. We were co-founded by the father of disruptive innovation, so we've always been thinking about what else we can do. So we tried newsletters. We tried working with the third party to do train the trainer programs. We tried a couple goes at online platforms. We tried venture capital investing. We tried creating an incubator. We tried lots of other things. I have personally participated in many of those things. And so far, the consulting business worked. The fourth go that we have at an online platform seems to be getting some traction. And there have been a lot of things that didn't work, whether it's a big, broad business model or when we tried to incubate businesses, some specific things that just reasonably spectacularly flopped. The good news in all of these things is I think the failures have been what Amy Edmondson from Harvard would call intelligent failures, where we were very clear about our assumptions, we had very clear experiments that we ran, and we were honest to ourselves. And we said, if this is not working, we're going to take the learnings out of it and we're going to stop so that we can be better consultants. And when we do it the next time, we can do it even better. That's true. What sage advice? We have lots of startup founders that have been on the show, uh, lots of CEOs. And so there's a lot of entrepreneurs that watch us. So, and what you just said is just great, uh, inspiring uh, advice that, you know, don't uh, don't give up on, on yourself. And, you know, smart people make original mistakes. <laughs> the second time you make the same exact mistake is a choice. So so that's great advice from you. Sorry, Ray. Hey. No, no, no. Getting past Audie and Amy are hard at HBR, so we totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> They've seen everything, so if you get something out there, and they, they have doing a great job. <laughs> it's the encyclopedic memory that gets you. They're like, yeah, back in 1972, we had this one paragraph in this article that already answered that. And you're like, damn. <laughs> like, darn. Like, wait, I thought it was a new idea, you know? You know, that happens a lot. Okay, well, let's talk about Singapore. I mean, Singapore's like this bustling place. Expats all come together. This is where the tech scene is, the financial scene. This is the innovation hub. This is the gateway into greater China. So talk about it. You've lived in Singapore for more than a decade, other than getting good $5 Hainan chicken rice. I mean, tell me what's hot. I mean, what's working and what innovation lessons have you learned there? And, and what's the startup scene like? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I, I'd make a couple observations. The first is, you know, when I moved out to Singapore in 2010, the startup scene was still pretty nascent. You ask people about an interesting Singapore startup and people would, would mention companies that were formed 20 or 30 years ago. Today, there are legitimate unicorns that are prancing around Singapore. C is a big one. You've got Grab in the market and a range of other ones as well. There is a legitimate bustling startup scene here, and I think Singapore has demonstrated that if you're smart about it, you can orchestrate the creation of an environment that fosters innovation, that fosters entrepreneurialism, that fosters startups. So it is something that, of course, takes concerted work, but the from to is really impressive. And as always in Singapore, you've had smart government involvement without getting too involved in the right sorts of ways and so on. So that's one big thing I would say. The second thing that I would just know, one of the things that's been personally very interesting to me, you know, I've lived out here for 11 years now. I've had the opportunity to go all around the region, and it really has changed the way that I think about a lot of things. You know, you grow up in the United States. There's certain orthodoxies you have. Markets are good. Private control is bad. Government involvement is bad. Family control companies are bad. And you spend time in this market and you say, you know, sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. Sometimes the right government involvement helps. Sometimes you see these amazing family controlled companies like the Ayala Group in the Philippines, yes. eighth generation leadership that's doing tremendous things for yes. the country and for its investors. So you see things like that to say, you know, there are more than one way to skin the proverbial cat. And, and perhaps, perhaps it's not the way that we historically learned in the U.S. Perhaps there's ways we should broaden our horizons. There's some great, great startups. Go Bear, Shopback, Secret Lab, Glintz. I mean, it yeah. places on fire. Stash away. I mean, amazing. Absolutely. Uh, Scott, this is my last question. You know, we've had a number of, uh, you know, practitioners, authors, thought leaders on our show. And the consensus with respect to the pandemic is that, uh, and there's a range here, but I would say probably um, a range where they tell us that uh, companies, society, uh, workers in general 
We've witnessed, uh, you know, culture and digital transformation accelerated five to 10 years in 2020 alone. You know, they referenced like e-commerce adoption in the 10-year accelerated adoption in the U.S., for example. And then the five-year could be like, you know, the work from home shift and the percentage of population that are now working remotely and may go to a hybrid, may not, may just continue to work from home. So as you said, from the April timeframe 2020, we saw this incredible, almost light switch, decentralized digital only construct that defined uh, you know, work environment and economy. What are some post pandemic predictions that you are comfortable sharing with us in terms of whether it's culture related technology, business model innovation, uh, what can we expect uh, in this new normal? And so a couple of things that I'd say. So we, I wrote a book back in 2009 called The Silver Lining that was in the middle of the global financial crisis. And we look back at previous big events to say what happened there. So there's one generic prediction I can make. There are going to be some amazing innovations that are created during this time, just like there were in the global financial crisis when Uber and Airbnb and Stripe were created, like there were at any big event. So we're going to see some really cool startups. We're going to see some big companies that do some really amazing things. If you get down to the more micro level, you want to make predictions. I don't necessarily have answers, but as Clay Christensen would always say, a good theory can be your guide. So we look to the idea of the job to be done. And the question we ask ourselves is during this period of time where people have been forced to experiment, where have they seen solutions that get the job done better? Those will stick. Where have they learned that the new solutions aren't good enough? That's the opportunity for innovation. So you can immediately see two applications. We have learned that virtual meetings work really well. That's going to continue. My personal view is that business travel will never come back to the level it was in 2019. It just won't. There's too much you can do virtually. We learned that virtual education, on the other hand, is not there yet. So when Singapore was tightly locked down from April to June of last year, our kids' schools did the best they possibly could. But when schools reopened, they were out the door in a second because physical education is just better than virtual. That's the innovator's opportunity. That's awesome. You're hearing it first from Scott D. Anthony, Strategic Advisor and Managing Director of InnoSight. You can follow him on Twitter at Scott D. Anthony, author of so many books, Thinkers 50, and more importantly, calling us from Singapore. Thanks for doing that for us. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Stay on. Stay on the green room. We'll catch you there. Eat, eat, sleep, and innovate. I don't know, man. <laughs> what a great book. What a so. great book. His eighth book, um, as you know. And uh, uh, yeah, just uh, he's been a big thinker for, you know, two decades. Uh, as you said, as he said, 21 years ago as a student, in grad, grad student with Professor, late Professor Clay Christensen. And Ray, I remember you and I sitting front row at one of, it may have been one of his handful of last keynotes um, Austin, Texas. at an educational conference. At, at Austin, and uh, it was just remarkable to um, to listen to his jobs to be done uh, and the milkshake story, and uh, you know, you know, in depth analysis of the, what is a true definition of disruptive innovation, innovators' dilemma. And it was just an honor to speak to him after the keynote and get even additional insights uh, from him. It was amazing. Well, hey, real quick, five years disrupt TV. What, what's what's most memorable, man? What's good for you? You know, it's uh, it's like asking your favorite child. You know, we've had we've had uh, six hundred and seventy interviews in five years, Ray. Uh, this is episode two hundred and twenty-two. Uh, I admired the. Um, uh, we're having fun. It's it's you know when you do a show forty-nine, fifty times a year. I mean, we we rarely cancel. It's usually because of a major holiday. Uh, so we probably do 48, 49, 50 shows a year. And sometimes we do multiple shows a week uh, when we do our special shows, when we've had folks like John Hagel, we've had Prime Minister of Australia, we had Vint Cerf, inventor of TCPIP and the godfather of the internet. So it's not just Fridays. We have a handful of special shows. When we go to Davos, we do you know the Davos remote events. Um, uh, you know, we've had episodes at NRF and CES and, you know, so, so sorry, long-winded answer. Uh, it's, my favorite part is that you and I get to be students once a week and for an hour learn from the best and brightest people in the world. Um, and share so, it. And share it. 
and share it. I mean, I'm grateful yeah. for our, obviously grateful for our audience. Um, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I, my sense is this is the most watched technology, you know, uh, oriented podcast. Uh, certainly, you know, we've had collectively millions of views of our show. We've had lots of shows that have crossed a hundred thousand view mark. Um, so, so we could, we clearly have an amazing audience, uh, but really it's a credit to our guests because at the end of the day, you and I, you know, we sit back and for 95% of the time we're listening. <laughs> so it's the quality of our guests. And if there's a call to action, if there's something that I wish is, is for our audience to recommend guests, recommend guests for us. Uh, and we will do our best to get who you want to hear from on our show. That's hopefully, uh, you know, that's a goal for us for 2021. Really, really cool. Hey, episode 223 coming up. Um, who do we have? We got some powerhouse people again. And We uh, have one of the, on the list? could be arguably the most influential technologist in India. We have Debjani Ghosh, who's president of NASCOM. NASCOM is a governing body, a consortium uh, of uh, IT leaders. So from companies from Tata to Wipro to some of the biggest global companies, uh, she's going to have a fireside chat with the president of IBM next week. So Debjani, you know, she regularly meets with the government officials. So NASCOM is shaping digital transformation for India. And India will have the second largest GDP in the world by the end of this decade. And they'll have a billion unique users connected to the internet with almost a $600 billion consumer buying power. Debjani Ghosh is our first guest next week. We have Dimitri Kowalski, product evangelist at Unit 4, and David Gang, CEO and co-founder of Brightspot. So get your popcorn ready. We have three really exceptionally smart and accomplished people for episode 223 next Friday. And Dimitri just got promoted to chief product officer, I think, this week. So, wow. yeah. Great to break Good way to catch them. So, all right. Well, hey, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. We're celebrating our fifth year. Thank you so much to our wonderful audience. Thank you to the community. And uh, more importantly, we won't be seeing you on Clubhouse yet. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe we'll see you on Clubhouse. Maybe. Anyways, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Take care. Have a wonderful Friday and see you guys all again. Cheers.